0: I find that the majority of people that don't have $1,000 that they can put together is because they don't even keep track. And one of the easiest very first steps that I give to people by way of getting their finances under control and really, again, getting the best possibility of, of any kind of growing their businesses is by keeping a really clear financial tracking.
1: You're listening to Ecomonics, a Debeautify podcast, your resource for one-of-a-kind insights into the world of e-commerce and business in the modern age. This is Joseph. I'll be presenting a wealth of industry knowledge from interviews with successful business people and our own state-of-the-art research. Your time is valuable, so let's go. My conversation with Matthew Pillmore taught me some valuable lessons about how we view our finances. He's provided a ton of great information, including a one-of-a-kind cash flow cruncher you can check out this instant to get a grip on your own financial status. Would it help to do that before listening to this episode? I don't know. Try it out. Let me know. Podcast at debutify.com. While there's a lot to learn from the questions I ask and the content I viewed, I also gained valuable insights just hearing about how he lives his life, the result of putting his knowledge into practice. Matthew Pillmore, it is good to have you here on Ecomonics. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? How are you feeling?
0: You know, I'm, I'm blessed. Crazy times we're in, but feeling very grateful these days. Um, welcome to a new member to, the, to our household. Got a puppy <laughs> a few days ago, so it's been a lot of fun chasing dogs around.
1: You were uh, gracious enough to make sure that dog is not a uh, featured guest on on the show. So (laughs) I've I've had to edit out, I've had had to edit out paw prints in the past on like on other people's work that I've done, the the, the pitter-patter, it's cute, but uh, not great for when two lawyers are trying to talk about um, standards and practices. So first question, we got to get this one going, it fires everything up. Uh, Tell us, Matthew, who you are and what do you do?
0: You bet. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast, Joseph. Uh, looking forward to um, you know, hopefully sharing some valuable information with your audience. My, uh, my background started in wholesale residential mortgages, and I actually got into that by accident. I was uh, canvassing neighborhoods with ADT security systems when I was 20 years old. Uh, happened to be out on a Sunday, uh, everybody's favorite day to get a solicitor at the door, of course. Ran into a gentleman <laughs> by the name of Larry King, if you can believe that. And what was funny about Larry King when I when I first met him was that he had a pair of glasses on, and I just remember one of his earpieces was broken off of his glasses. He happens to mention to me, "Listen, if you can be out peddling security alarm system contracts on a Sunday while there's snow on the ground, you'd be excellent in the mortgage business. You should come on board." This was back in 2000. Now. uh, you may be too young to remember, but in the two thousand early two thousands, there was this crazy refinance boom that was taking place. Uh, not a whole lot unlike today, as a matter of fact. And essentially at that point anybody could be in the mortgage industry. Didn't need any licensing, no insurance or bonding. And um, you know, he, he So people could me. just get going.
1: They just yeah. they just sign up and they well, I wouldn't have it's expected that.
0: Very competitive marketplace at the time, a lot of money to be made people were getting into that subprime in, in, industry and and they were uh, making a ton of money doing it. And in and, and my opinion, sort of misleading people, it made it very difficult for me because I was a very conventional, uh, you know, sort of in the box thinker when it came to mortgages, uh, I didn't fall into that um, that mentality of, Hey, let's get people these, what they call liar loans, um, where you were basically allowed to put anything you wanted on an application and the bank would be happy to give the money. So, uh, in order to separate ourselves from the competition, what we did was we we began this branch of our mortgage company where we were educating people. And at the time, I was you know uh, twenty years younger. Obviously, I was in my early twenties. I had come out of college like so many students with destroyed credit, and because I was now in this space where credit was so relevant, I was really drawn to it. I became fascinated with the subject. At the time, there weren't platforms like YouTube or social media, where there was a lot of mm-hmm. information that you could dig into. The internet was fairly ambiguous when it came to the the, the details behind these formulas. And so when we had the opportunity to, to make an investment into this mentorship program with two of the leaders in that space, we jumped at it. It was a scary decision. It cost a lot of money. We spent $15,000 as well as 300 bucks a month to stay enrolled. And they provided some CRM software tools, and essentially, we were able to become known as authorities in in on the subject of both personal and business credit. And so, by the age of 25, I was invited to uh, a lot of various radio programs, a uh, handful of radio shows. I'm sorry, uh, television shows. Um, and yeah, and so you know, we just ended up sort of well known for our knowledge about um, building credit. And so, by the time you know, I was in my mid 20s, it it started to branch even further, I became, I I became just enamored with the subject to the point where I was almost second guessing why, why is this knowledge so important. And as I dug further, it it, it really uncovered this whole world of how people can rely on their borrowing strength on their on their uh, lender worthiness, if you will, And uh, by doing so, you can access and kind of tap into these sources of capital, Uh, again, both through the personal side and the business side. And by by allowing yourself uh, sort of a, a, um, you know, a top tier borrowing position, you end up with this money that you can use for a variety of reasons. And once we began to, to go to that next kind of third stage of the conversation beyond getting access to the money it became a question of how to use it and we started to realize that almost everything we had ever learned in our lifetime the traditional form of uh, financial education whether it be in the household or in uh, in schools it was wrong you know it's very much in favor of the banks of course it's mm-hmm. very much uh, tailored towards convincing people that they they really should be, Uh, worker bees, right? W2 employees versus uh, out venturing on their own and how to leverage these various types of capital to our advantage. And so uh, I had a lot of great influences along the way that I'm happy to share on the on today's podcast. But uh, ultimately, it led where we are today, where we, we connected what I call the three C's of proper banking and borrowing, which involves optimization of credit The second being the acquisition of capital that's on an annual basis. Every year, we're trying to get at least $25,000. That number can be even as much as $250,000. Much of it is uh, we don't pay any money for and by way of interest costs unless we use it. It's revolving. And the third step being the growth of cash flow. And cash flow is really my specialty. So where I educate people either in person or online, I'm teaching people how to grow their leftover net cash flow position at the end of each month which then provides people the ability to make choices throughout their life and that's lifestyle based choices freedom comes from cash flow and so we're we're very particular about uh, doing our research and putting together mathematical equations that that lead us to um, you know a, a favorable outcome with with respect to um, living life by design.
1: Mm-hmm. There's a lot of places that uh, I can I can take this conversation because you've given me a lot of different uh, areas that we can go to. Um, one thing that I, I want to establish as an understanding in regards to cash flow is what actually technically qualifies as that. Like I'm, if I get a paycheck from uh, from my from my job the, and the money left over from after you know taxes or. Expenses does does that count as cash flow? Is it essentially any money coming in, or are there parameters or restrictions to what actually counts?
0: Uh, It's anything left over uh, that you take home. So we don't count taxes, right? We don't we don't necessarily take the withholdings that come from a paycheck. Cash flow is what's left over that enters into the home, and uh, what we're looking for. There's two forms of that. There's a gross cash flow position. And there's a net cash flow position. Gross cash flow is what you would have left over after all of your debts have been paid in full. Your net cash flow is with your debt servicing still in place. So, net cash flow is the most important number of the two. It represents where you'll be after all of your debts have finally been satisfied. And that's an objective that we teach. We teach our audience how to. Uh, what we call beat the banks uh, with mm-hmm. respect to managing our our leverage and our, our debt servicing. We pay it off on an mm-hmm. accelerated basis. So a lot of fascinating strategies as to how to do that, both mortgage and non-mortgage debts. Our, our, our typical students will end up paying their homes off in anywhere between five to 10 years, most typically. Um, and there are some anomaly circumstances, myself included, where we've managed to pay off 30-year loans in well under five years. So a lot of really powerful ways of of avoiding tremendous amounts of interest costs.
1: That's fantastic. And one of the things that stuck out to me f- uh, from earlier, from your from the answer to your from, to my question, is that you were saying how many students are coming out of school and they're burdened by debt. And you know, I, I grew up, had a house, had internet, had food, and those are all things that other people would consider a privilege to their and you know, which is fair. But I, I got to say, one of I think the most amazing uh, privileges that I have experienced is not having debt. Uh, my, my parents were willing to they put they had co- money put away for college. They were willing to pay for it. It was a two year program. You know, it didn't it didn't it didn't exactly uh, break the bank. I wasn't trying to be a doctor, but the fact that I got out of college and I didn't have a significant financial advantage, but. I, I had a neutral position, which I could take with me as I tried to make my way into the marketplace. And that is massive. And I and I do feel for a lot of people who are a burden with this debt because it doesn't just take away their ability to, you know, make investments and to try to thrive and to get themselves into a better position, but it eats away at their mental well being as well.
0: Oh, I completely agree with you. And there's also another side of this story, and I think Joseph, this is where a lot of people go wrong. When I mentioned my influencers. The, the first person I really stumbled into early in my career was Robert Kiyosaki and he's the author of the rich dad, poor dad series has really a cult following to especially in the real estate community, which I'm, I'm heavily involved with. And it, you know, it, it really struck a chord with me because here's this guy that's teaching a lot of the same concepts that, that I believed were true by way of the, the education system leaving us without the knowledge we need to remain fiscally uh, savvy. And, and, and I think that goes beyond fiscal responsibility in a lot of ways, because I think the traditional definition of fiscal responsibility is very much what you're describing here, right? How do we minimize, uh, our, our debt loads? How do we, how do we cash flow most things? How do we just pay for things with cash and avoid this heavy burden of debt? However, Robert Kiyosaki had this kind of revolutionary, uh, State of mind surrounding debt, right? And he was sort of the author of the good, bad, dead, bad, debt, debt, good, debt, bad debt conversation. Well, good debt is representative of, of leverage, right? Being able to borrow somebody else's money, he calls it OPM, the acronym, whereby you can then. Okay, I, saw I,
1: I my mind went to a different place there for a second.
0: <laughs> gotcha. Okay, uh, yeah. and it, ultimately, the uh, good debt formula is where you're able to pull in speculated rates of return that exceed the cost of the money that you borrow. And in today's climate, that is extremely powerful because I just closed on a mortgage on a property at 2.875% that a lot of people would say, why, why would you ever pay that off? And as I grew my businesses, as I grew my real estate investing portfolio, I found myself growing Far less comfortably by way of my debt load than I than I wanted, and I, you know, I surpassed a million dollars, and that was really my pain threshold where I started thinking to myself, okay, you know, and especially when you're in your mid twenties and it's the mid two thousands, those numbers were were a lot higher than they even are now today. I mean, you're in California; it's hard to find houses that are less than a million dollars, and Mm and so at that point, I'm thinking to myself, this is not something I'm I'm willing to. To sleep well at night, accepting what can be done about this, which is when I ran into another main influencer in my life, which was Dave Rams. Another very, very popular personality started on the radio, obviously huge on YouTube now. And he's completely the opposite, right? The pendulum swung all the way to the other side, whereby he's saying, hey, we- you know, you should avoid debt at all costs, including but not limited to cutting up your credit cards. You shouldn't even be using credit cards that you're paying in full every month to, to earn rewards points from. And again, I'm sitting here looking at a lot of the advice given and and really favoring a lot of it, Where whereas the other side of the story just seemed not to fit my narrative. I, I was interested in the banks paying me to use their product. And so what, what we really did was find a middle of the road there. It was a happy medium between the two. So it's not that I uh disagree with using leverage. I love the power of leverage. I think it's one of the most important key ingredients to massive acceleration to wealth creation, whether you're in the e-commerce space, an entrepreneur in any other industry, and or a W-2 wage earner who wants to diversify their investments. Ultimately, the second you use leverage, it becomes debt, which is My worst enemy, and it's it's fair to argue it's a contradiction. And yet, my the way I I compartmentalize this this you know financial philosophy, this this religion, is that (laughs) I uh, I just don't agree with the terms that I that I signed on the dotted line to get. The fact that I got a thirty year loan doesn't mean I have to keep it for that long. I'm able to get the leverage and again attack it as if it is. Uh, a, a vulnerability and uh, a weakness of mine, which it is. And if you go back to the collapse of the last down, you know, market downturn, of the economy in two thousand and eight, and several years beyond that, you're you'll find that the main exposure people had was their debt. It was the the problem, and people were uh, well, eleven million people or thereabouts were you know making their way to the bankruptcy attorneys' offices and and uh, finding themselves starting over. And that can take a decade. So we've got to be very careful with that.
1: I was in college when it was the 2008 financial crisis. And uh, just a brief story. So that was when I first started doing podcasting and I would rent material from the uh, from the electronics department and invite my classmates to come on. And I was using a free podcasting hosting service at the time. And I, once the, the recession had hit, the podcasting service had to contact everybody and say, you know, due to the recession, we can't afford to, to host this content any longer. And so my, my show got shut down. Oh, and okay. uh, and we, we all had a good laugh because I said, Joe, of all the people to be affected by the financial crisis, it had to be you and your podcast. So just, a, I, I mean, for me, it's, it's hilarious. And I love thinking back to it, but it's a ripple effect where this thing doesn't just affect a, a small pocket of people. It it just comes in waves and waves and hits this person then it hits that person connected to that person and before you know it the whole country and the whole continent has uh, faced the impact of it beyond the continent the whole world starts to face the impact
0: and so but yet you know putting yourself in a position of uh of avoidance because of the fear of of the risks involved I personally think leaves uh, a lot of opportunity on the table and for those of us who wait to identify that opportunity uh, would you mind if I share a quick story with you here? By all
1: means, I'd be happy to hear it.
0: I, I just want to give you an example. So on Monday, which happened to be my birthday, I, I actually had an opportunity where we inked a deal on a new business. Now, I, I'm a serial mm-hmm. entrepreneur. I do this all the time where I start various um, random businesses and uh, you know, much of the research and development that goes into some of the businesses we start leads us to a dead end where we ultimately figure out, hey, this is a deal breaker. This is not a business that we're going to continue to pursue. Uh, and we start, we stop even before it starts. Now, this was a different situation. And I just kind of want to give, um, you know, uh, people optimism that, look, you can look outside of where you're at today. I, I'm, I'm definitely somebody that generates a lot of money through Uh, being online, being an influencer. And yet here we were inking a deal in the septic and sewer world. I've got this gentleman that lives in town with me. He's become a good friend of mine over the last six months. In fact, I needed him when I hired him for a property that I own in our town and there was a leak under the sink. He's a a local plumber. I live in a small town. There's only 3,000 people here. So I have very limited trades professionals that I can rely on. When he entered the home, he started making small talk and just got to know me and, and, and vice versa. And and when he asked what I did and I mentioned, I was a YouTuber, he said, uh, you know, wow, that just gave me chills on my arms because I've been thinking about getting into YouTube too. Would you be open to maybe sharing some of your knowledge with me about, you know, finances and business, which after I told him what I did, he was, he's, he's told me that he had a new baby in, in the Philippines and he was really excited about trying to, To blow his business up next year. Uh, I agreed to do that. You know, and he said, listen, I won't charge you for any plumbing at any point. Now, that's a huge resource to have in your back pocket when you're dealing with rental properties. And I use I have it. It's a short term rental. And uh, and so I was thrilled. He's become this good friend, uh, very trustworthy individual. As of Sunday, we sat down Monday, we agreed to uh, meet basically supplying him with some equipment that he's been wanting for the past two years in order to expand into the drainage, sewer scope, and jetting industry it, alongside his uh, you know, his normal plumbing services. Um, but he can't afford the $25,000 it takes to buy the scope and the jetter. Now, I said, listen, in exchange for 45% of all invoices that you charge even drive times for, I will supply for you these two pieces of equipment. Once the equipment is paid off after the 25,000 is recouped, I'm going to, I'm going to actually go into a 35% of all invoicing in perpetuity. Now his expectation based on him receiving anywhere between three to five calls every single day, even while not having this equipment is that we'll be able to generate somewhere between a hundred thousand to $250,000 next year collectively. Now, after obviously paying for various expenses, my split on that could be anywhere north of 45K on a $25,000 investment. That investment came from one of these tools that we rely on. Now, we call these tools debt weapons. It's just a fun Mm -hmm. term we gave them when we were early in our career. We spent a lot of our time focusing on the debt elimination benefits that come from these tools. But the secondary and third benefits that are there involve being able to take $25,000 like I am in, in this situation for what I'm expecting will be a huge return on my investment, or just having access to the money as a safety net in the form of an emergency reserve, which is far different than what we were taught growing up. What we're taught growing up by way of emergency reserves is tuck money away in a cash account in the bank, savings or checkings, and those accounts will earn virtually nothing. Now, by me just simply taking this and putting it to work for me, I'm using the Robert Kiyosaki philosophy of leveraging other people's money into returns on that investment that are far superior than what it's going to cost me to give it to them. And then I'm able to repay it by using the Dave Ramsey philosophies of hating my debts using a collection of techniques. I use a different technique than Dave Ramsey. It's faster, a little more complicated, but it saves future interest costs, allow me to pay things off more quickly. And I'm eliminating these balances. In literally, what's what I'm expecting it to be will uh, somewhere around the six-month mark if we're at $100,000 in revenues, not higher. If it's higher than that, I could recoup and pay that loan off in a matter of one, two, three, four, five months, right? There's, there's no telling. So uh, this is where I think people need to be really intuitive about their... Uh, credibility, what has what often been referred to as your life's financial report card, your credit, mm-hmm. whereby you can then access various forms of these borrowing tools. And you can put this money into great ideas you have. You can put this money into great e-commerce business models that you've already seen proof of concept from. If you already have proof of concept, which is my recommendation, you put you can easily and safely Quantify the data to put it to work for you using other people's money. If you don't have proof of concept, I'm usually discouraging people from borrowing money to go into something that's 100% speculated. If it's speculative, use your own money. Save up your money and be ready and willing to lose it Mm -hmm. if it doesn't work out. Now, I'm usually discouraging people from building out their own business model or roadmap Versus following somebody else's pre-existing plan that, again, has a a social evidence to it, where they're able to take you by the hand and show you the ropes. I usually recommend people do that first. I did not follow that approach. We've invented multiple business models where we trailblazed, and it was extremely painful because we didn't have somebody else ahead of us taking all the arrows for us, like Russell Brunson likes to say, right? Go out. It's like walking through somebody's footprints in the snow. It's so much easier. So find somebody, but invest in their stuff with your own money and then use other people's money to, to surge the momentum forward, uh, by way of getting access to capital that, uh, uh, you wouldn't have otherwise, if you had to sit back and save over an extended period of time.
1: Uh, One thing I want to mention being in Canada is that I have firsthand experience of trying to walk in other people's, uh, snow steps. It's a lot easier when they have like a wagon or or a sled or something. And then it's just the trail is laid out. So one thing I want to um, get your perspective on is just how foundational uh, borrowing and lending is. Obviously, I was about to say culturally, and I don't think I'm wrong in that because money is really tied into a, most, if not all, of our culture. I think that there is a disconnect or there's – like you're saying, there's a fear of trying to um, borrow other people's money. And you broke down by saying that for speculative stuff, use your own money because we don't really know what's going to happen, hence speculation, versus stuff that we have more of a surefire sense of where it's going because the path has been laid out for us. But borrowing is tantamount to pretty much our whole society, even on the highest level, the federal – the government – if you look at the debt clock right now, it's one of the most mesmerizing things you'll see because that number will not stop growing. So our entire country runs on borrowing. And my philosophy, and I'd like to, you know, if you can poke a hole in it, feel free, but borrowing is trust. It's taking a loan out on our future productivity. The reason why I actually, it doesn't bother me that the Fed continues to to, uh, increase its debt is because there is this faith that the country will continue to be productive and hopefully at some point we'll hit quantum speed technology and we'll be able to actually like surge right past this debt to the point where now I'm talking about like year 4,000 or something like that. So that's why I I made peace with it, even though not many people are making peace with deficit spending. For some reason I just kind of like, well, people are motivated to keep the country going. So I guess it's going to work out. Uh, I mean, yeah, I have no
0: idea. Um, uh, all I know is that there is limited control surrounding us. Mm-hmm. And we see that more and more than ever before. If anything that th- this year has demonstrated, it's the uncertainty that is involved when it comes to you know, the social economics that are involved uh, in each household. And what I find is that you're going way beyond what most people are even equipped to, to understand, including myself. And I think we're very much kicking our can down the road right now by way of the bailouts and these stimulus. The government is is it's incapable, uh, in my own small mind, mathematically, of re- of resolving itself. And that, that is why it is so much more important than ever before that we get things under control. Uh, statistically, I'm not sure what the difference is between the U.S. and Canada. However, it's been said many times that roughly 70% of people can't scratch together a thousand dollars. That's a really big issue, especially when you suddenly find yourself in a global pandemic and jobs are on the line and people are unsure where their next dollar is going to come from. So my recommendation for people is to stop with the fear mongering, you know, stop seeking fear mongering. Uh, I, I eliminated my Facebook four months ago. It's been the best four months of my life. Social dilemma was a great eye opener for a lot of that. It's, Designed to keep us in fear, you got to remain as proactive as possible. Stay with the things that you actually have some level of control over. And I find that the majority of people that don't have $1,000 that they can put together is because they don't even keep track. And one of the easiest, very first steps that I give to people by way of getting their finances under control and really, again, getting the best possibility of, of any kind of growing their businesses is by keeping a really clear financial tracking. We provide a spreadsheet. Your audience is more than welcome to it. It's completely free of charge. We don't have any funnel that's associated with it where they might feel like uh, this is some sort of a, a strings attached type of an offer. Simply go to cashflowcruncher.com to download it. It's a very simple Excel spreadsheet. You, I generally recommend people separate those between their personal as well as their business, have one for each. The personal household is its own ecosystem. The business is paying you. And you have your own household expenses and your personal living expenses, whereas on the business, you're going to have its own income coming into the business by way of uh, any of the revenues that you have, where you'll track the revenues for that as well as the business expenses, including one of which is the distributions to you that show up on your personal household cash flow cruncher. And what that will do is actually give you both the net and the gross cash flow that's there on average at the end of each month and i recommend that you use these based on averages and you can use a an or overarching average and you can then narrow it into each month an updated version because every single person has uh, obviously a uh, a variable involved with their expenses and some people have a variable involved with their income especially e-commerce folks, especially as entrepreneurs, anybody who's self-employed, anybody who's commission-based, you know we're, we're dealing with uh, inconsistency with what we're earning. So use averages on that tool, but it is a phenomenal way of seeing things. And it doesn't matter whether you're disappointed about the outcome or you're pleasantly surprised by what you see when you're finished with the exercise. Every, pe- every person that I have a chance to speak with unanimously agrees that it was a productive exercise to have that fi- finished. So Take the time. You know, if you're diligent about your money, it should take you about 30 minutes to, to complete it. If you're disorganized, you need it even worse, but it will take you slightly longer to get that uh, all that data transposed into the spreadsheet. But it is very, very much the very first step that I would recommend to every audience you have is mm-hmm. to simply track what you have coming in and what you have going out. And you will be surprised, but you'll have the empowerment to make very small adjustments and manipulations to it in order to plug leaks And very rarely do we see people with less than $100 of improvement instantly per month. And many people are north of $500, in some cases even north of of $1,000 per month by just doing self-audits periodically on that. From there, you can get a little bit more advanced. Um, Our YouTube channel, VIP Financial Education, teaches tons tons of different ways that you can strategically use these debt weapon tools to grow your cash flow and to build your business with them.
1: And one thing I want to point out too, and the reason why a lot of, and this is, I'm including myself in this too, is that these poor spending habits they tend to exist in a vacuum. Like each time I t- I would take an Uber trip home, uh, which not that often, but I have uh, worse habits. Like how often I might end up getting uh, fast food. They don't. They're not perceived in aggregate. So when we don't look at our spending habits and in a big picture, then oh well, you know this this burger here just doesn't matter all that much. But then. We look at oh, how many times have I actually bought these? How many times have I taken this trip? And then that adds up, and then you realize how uh, much money you could be saving if you had that big picture view of yourself.
0: I love that you brought that up because I can't help but but constantly reference the parallel that comes w- by way of the you know the comparisons between you know fiscal and, and, and financial responsibility and. And, ph- and physical health. Uh, they're mm-hmm. very, very similar in so many different ways. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and it's funny because if you're tracking what you're putting into your body, uh, it's so much easier to make subconscious adjustments. And I, the, you know, a lot of the reason that I ended up where I am today is just because I flat out rebel against a lot of the recommendations that were made to me throughout my lifetime. So much of it just felt like a slap on the hand Sort of a subconscious punishment of, of a lecture every time it's you're doing something you shouldn't do. It mm-hmm. makes me want to do it more. Somebody says, Oh, don't buy this, don't buy that. It makes me want to do it more. That's why I wasn't attracted to the Dave Ramsey philosophies because it felt so restrictive. And I'm not a sacrificial type of person, I'm an abundance type of a person. I don't like scarcity. And so, uh, you know, I had to reinvent my relationship with spending. I have to reframe through a collection of various exercises that are really helpful for me for instance um i've always liked red bull right i'm not i'm a little ashamed of that it's not it's not healthy speaking of health but hey i like it right i'll
1: tell you i'll tell you this much about red bull is that i'm i think i'm the only person on the planet who really likes the taste of red bull it's it, it, the caffeine, the the energy side of it, uh, but for me, I, I don't know. The the citrus composition, I just love drinking Red Bull. I Again, I don't have it too often, but yeah, it's, I don't know, something about the way I'm wired, I guess.
0: Well, beyond the health aspect, it's obviously uh, ridiculously expensive, right? Four yeah. or five bucks a can uh, is, is easy to, to, to find. And when I'm standing there at an impulse crossroad, standing at a checkout, and I have the option of grabbing a, an ice-cold can and dropping four, th- $4 on that can, I don't necessarily recognize that that 4 can on the future interest cost impact is directly influenced by anywhere, typically by three to five times of that face-to-face dollar, which means that if I just simply took that $4 and even attacked future interest on, say, one of my rental mortgages, I could easily, through the, the amortization calculator that's inside our cash flow cruncher worksheet I'll see a 12 to 20 dollar impact of that $4. So I look at this and say well hold on a second here right this 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 can of red bull is 12 bucks. It's like fuck no man I don't want the red bull anymore and it's an easy decision for me to walk into without feeling like I'm getting the slap on the wrist or uh you know or being restrictive and something I actually really want, I couldn't have. No, it's me saying, well, it's not worth 12. So it becomes my own decision versus this sort of rebellious suggestion that people who are smarter than me have made to me. And I, and so that has been a very positive influence to me. And I think if people only knew what the future cost of the typical things they're buying of every dollar, Mm -hmm. where it was going, people would just Hold off on things more uh, on a discretionary level. So that has been really helpful for me as sort of these mind mani- mind manipulation tac- tactics that uh, that sort of changed what I was taught growing up.
1: Yeah, I, I noticed that I have a um, a persuasion element inside my mind inside my conscious the persuader is constantly trying to talk me into certain things and as soon as i find myself agreeing with them i think oh no wait a minute this is the persuader trying to get me to go back on a promise i made myself last week
0: interesting very interesting yeah um, i think that's good yeah i mean you've got to be able to you got to stop that that small talk i mean you're going to have that devil on your shoulder and listen instant gratification has become a real addiction for people by and large, because of how easy it is to, you know, to push with a couple of, of mouse, mouse buttons, uh, you know, uh, you're, you know, you can get Santa every day.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I, I wanted to, uh, to to express about how I've been able to at least get more of a grip on this is that um, anticipation is one of the best things about gratification. Waiting for something that pays off is where most of that that, that good feeling comes from. So I've me personally, I limit, say like, I'll go to Starbucks once a week, no more takeout once a week, no more than that. And that way it's given me something to look forward to on a week to week basis. It's given me a way to enhance my Monday and my Tuesday, knowing that on Wednesday, I'm going to go get takeout. It's an excellent. So there are ways to, yeah, to get more value out of uh, our our mindset just by limiting
0: ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're treating it as a reward. And you can celebrate too. You know, there's a lot of reasons to do that. A lot of times with business development, I'm doing the same thing where I earn the upgrade. I, if I'm wanting to make a decent investment, I've got to make certain uh, uh, income objectives in order to then go out and, and invest into that 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 next expensive investment that I'm. You know, fingers crossed is going to work, but there there's mm-hmm. always risk involved with business development. And, and again, I see all too often people who. Aren't necessarily great at follow through and they're, they're easily sucked into the next shiny business idea. Uh, and so the, the goal is to again get yourself into a position where you're generating rewards and you're, you're, you're creating celebrations um, that will then feed even more cash flow. And, and and we've we've really, I want to say I invented this concept through parallel thinking called what what we call lifestyle assets. And lifestyle assets are where we can essentially get anything we want. And use it to grow our cash flow. So what most people would consider to be liabilities like this $35,000 Polaris that I bought last year, that would by most uh, definitions be considered a liability. But if I can use that tool as a tax deductible purchase on a property where it's being used as a utility vehicle, uh, we can actually put that to work in our short term rental It increases the amount of money we make just by virtue of it serving the needs we have around the land because it's a it's a fairly large property, and uh, and yet of course the recreational aspect of it is just sort of a perk, right? And the same thing with uh, our Airbnb property. Our Airbnb property serves our purpose by way of us personally using it. We get to actually use and enjoy it. Where we get to, to to live and travel for free. There's a video on our channel that's titled "How I Live and Travel for Free." We bought two. RVs. This, la- this just this year alone, we bought a forty-two foot fifth wheel. We bought a twenty-four foot travel trailer, and you know, a large truck to take it all around with us. And we get to travel anytime we want to. When the house isn't being rented, we're obviously staying in it, which amounts to anywhere between seven and a half to eight years, uh, eight seven and a half to eight months of a year. Uh, and it pays us fifty thousand dollars a month. So it's a great way for us to be able to. To sort of focus on these more expensive decisions than we would normally make because the net cash flow improvement is the underlying objective by that decision. And I did find out just recently that somebody has been using the term lifestyle asset be, before I did. Uh, so I do want to give credit. I don't even know the guy's name. Somebody brought it up to me. No, no, I heard about that. And they were talking about it a few years ago. I thought I was genius for coming up with this term. So Credit where credit is due. If I knew the name, I'd share it with you. But unfortunately, it um, sounds like there were more more than just me thinking, hey, how can I also you know, have my cake and eat it too? That's the rebel in me.
1: Well, you uh, you came to it independently. So it almost sounds like uh, one task might be to find all those other people who came to it independently and get together and have a conversation with them because you might have other commonalities too, right? Your mind got to that point.
0: No question about it. Yeah. Until then, I'm just Amy Schumer.
1: All right. So here's one that I'm dying to ask. And um, we've touched on it uh, here and there as we've been talking. But I want to make sure that we sink our teeth into this because this is probably the most shocking thing that I had seen looking at the content in preparation for this interview. Um, I went into it with some preconceived notions about proper money management. For instance, when given the choice between renting and owning, my preconceived notion is that owning is Almost invariably, the superior choice. And you have a video, by the way, that gets into that. The second one, and this is the one that seriously had my gears turning, is the futility of savings. And those aren't your words; those are my words. Um, but the rate—basically, what happens is, if the rate of inflation exceeds the rate of interest, then that money over time is actually losing value. So I have an undisclosed amount of money in my savings. It's more than ten k. So you know, there's money there. Um, I, for for people like me who are, are are now seriously considering what else we can do with that money sitting in the bank and generating interest that's not giving up of inflation how do we stop the bleeding what's like what can we do to uh start getting that money to go somewhere more useful
0: well i mean you're exactly right i mean putting money in savings is basically the same as you, you know your money just gradually losing value over time and uh a lot of people don't realize it, but, you know, the concept of banking actually started in the 11th century in, in Italy and they're, they're essentially in the, in the risk management business. So, you know, they, they, they just uh, take calculated risks. And that's obviously why credit is such an important piece to this equation. You know, people put their money in the bank. They do that because of safety. They do that because of convenience. They do that because it's liquid and then banks Lend that money out through something called fractional reserve lending. Now, I don't want to get too deep into economics. I'm just not the qualified specialist on the subject, but I'm here, here to tell you just the basic concept behind fractional reserve, where for every dollar you deposit into checking and savings accounts, the bank has permission to lend out up to nine times that dollar. So, nine bucks gets lent out for every dollar you have in. If you have 10K in your bank, they have the ability to lend out ninety thousand dollars towards other borrowers, and that's how they make money. They make money by by uh, many services: the buying and selling currencies, offering you know these savings deposits. Uh, they charge these service fees every month. They charge overdraft fees. They charge ATM fees. They offer credit cards, merchant services, etc. And the major problem with banks right now is that. Uh, you know, many of them moved away from the role of providing long-term financial products. Um, you know, instead, they prefer these short-term gains that come with these higher risks. And, and, uh, and ultimately, you're there putting your money in, getting very, very little out of it. Therefore, we're concentrating on maximizing each side of the balance sheet. There's only two ways to grow your cash flow, Right. The first way is to make more money. The second way is, of course, to spend less money. That's it. Now, there are a lot of semantics on each side of that. A lot of options. In fact, arguably infinite options, especially on the make more money side of that conversation. On the spend less side of the balance sheet, and the reason I've always loved attacking and eliminating debt very quickly, is because even if I'm paying low interest rate, even through promotional periods or even over a fixed term like a 2.8% mortgage, I want to pay that off still in five years because I'm going to free up that cash flow of the minimum payment obligation that I'm servicing. Even if a significant portion of it's going towards principal, I want the cash flow. But there are still restrictions on how much I can do. There's a maximum capability. I only have so much potential. I could slice and dice and save. I can go into the scarcity uh, side of the spectrum where Mm -hmm. I'm a coupon cutter and I'm cutting five hours worth of coupons to save 90 bucks on toothpaste. But for most people, the average household is really looking at somewhere in the low thousands capability, best case scenario. There are some people that are anomalies on much higher than that. they are big earners, high, high income earners, high spenders, and they can cut a lot. There are people that are much lower than low thousands and really can only cut to the extent of hundreds, maybe high hundreds every month. Uh, but in the end, thousands a month is, is not uncommon. It's the norm. Whereas on the income and asset side of the balance sheet, um, there's endless potential. You know, you and I could, we have to agree that the, that the potential is limitless. And so again, another exercise that I've used to sort of hack my own brain, it's worked very effectively for me. Maybe it'll help a couple people on your end. I call it the zero to Bezos scale. Now the Bezos, zero to Bezos scale is a top down strategy versus bottom up strategy. And when I was growing up, maybe you can relate to this, but I, I always referenced the fact that my my friends in school, if there were whispers around you know recess that, hey, my parents make $100,000, those people were rich, man. Okay? So in my own small mind for the first 18 years of my life, and even a couple years beyond that, I looked at the pinnacle as 100K a year. I want to make six figures, six figures, six figures. And when I said six figures... I even looked at a quarter million a year as, as fantasy. It was unrealistically impossible to do. So I, I just wasn't really a, you know, I wasn't in that, that, uh, that, that MD space. I wasn't in that Esquire space. I was very much a uh, you know, I was just a normal dummy that knew I wasn't good at school. And so that was what I was shooting for. Well, guess what? I mean, the more you start to break that down dollars per hour, you're looking at 50 bucks And I remember for a long period of my life, roughly half of my life, I was thinking $50 was good. I remember the first time I hit 20 an hour, I'm thinking, man, I'm really on my way. You know, I just got to keep working my way up to 50, and then I'll be at 100,000. It wasn't really until probably about six ish years ago now that, again, I reinvented my relationship in another way with money, which was, why the hell am I focusing my time and effort and energy on targeting this 100K maximum possibility instead of looking at what the superstars of the earnings world are actually pulling in? And of course, you've got to look at the world record holder, which is Bezos. And I, the last time I ran through this exercise physically on Google, I just went on there and said, how much is this guy making? It said, and this was in 2019, that's the last time I, ran, I physically ran through the exercise. And it says, hey, in his best months, uh, in 2008 uh, 2018 he's pulling down uh you know north of 160 million per day in his worst months he's pulling down 97 million per day and I'm thinking 97 million a day and here I am fighting for a hundred thousand a year at 50 an hour 97 million a day on a 10-hour workday is 9.7 million dollars an hour
1: I have an easier time believing you met Larry King than I am believing that which i I fully believe it, by the way, but what you're saying just now, 97 million a day.
0: By the way, it wasn't a real Larry King, it was a oh, random okay. guy named Larry King. I just thought that that was funny. I didn't actually <laughs> meet the Larry King, unfortunately.
1: All right, fair enough. Well, it was a good thing I, I, I... No,
0: I, I just, actually, was a random stranger named Larry King, which I loved, and I found his glasses that much more amusing. So this, yeah, you know, this this idea of some some guy who famously created something from nothing he wasn't handed anything on a silver platter. This was not some nepotism. This is, there's p- pictures, we've all seen it, of him in, in his garage or in his basement with a handwritten sign on the wall of Amazon. And we think to ourselves, 9.7 million an hour. If I'm only one-tenth of 1% as capable of this other human being, if, if he's that much better than me, that much savvier than I am, I'm still able to pull in ninety seven hundred dollars an hour. Why am I focusing on fifty? And it was such a supercharge towards my initial transition into the online space, because the world is available to us online. And I transitioned from geographically isolated education. and I would step into rooms and educate people face to face, and I might sit in front of a hundred people in one class, five people in another class, three hundred in another but i was really limited there too and as i started to branch into the geographically boundless potential of the internet it was a combination of that and my mentality shifting that if i'm only focusing on a million dollars per year at this point i'm thinking too small much less 100,000 a year and so i want everybody here to realize that yes having your money sitting in checking and savings Will do so little for you by way of your return and what the banks are willing to pay you at this point, that you will feel insulted for keeping your money in that account. And yes, by way of inflation, you will lose value of your money over time, each and every day that goes by. It does not mean you have to rush and find a sort of higher risk place for your money to to serve you. You can be patient and find a way for low risk to produce high returns. I think that there is a a a dangerous myth that risk is relative to reward. Mm-hmm. That is true. You can find low risk, especially in online commerce, and you can have boundless potential with that. We're making a million dollars a year, my very first year uh using click I joined this, the Two Comma Club with with ClickFunnels. So it took me less than a year to generate almost a million and a half dollars online. And I, that was almost from scratch. I had a very small presence of roughly 7,500 subscribers on YouTube at that time. So it wasn't like I was starting from nothing. But you know, we're at 229 or 230,000 subscribers today. So there's been a lot of progress in a very short period of time by just directing my focus towards that. And, uh, and again, incredible amounts of money, hundreds of thousands per month that I never thought was possible in earlier years of my life. And now I look at it and say, (laughs) this is bullshit, right? It's a, it's a perpetual discontent. And I think having perpetual discontent is important in general with how you operate your business, but also how you operate your banking and borrowing. You should look at any amount of debt as totally unacceptable you should look at any amount of cash flow is totally unacceptable and it should be a perpetual pursuit of progress, of progress and potential um and uh and I think that's how the superstars do it
1: you know um because you were mentioning about the mindset that you had when you were in school and i remember the mindset that i had was that once people were rich they were disconnected from society and so the only way to earn any living was to get other money from other people in the working class or in the middle class and and I know that's not true I know that the the wealthy are so participating in economics I think it's just uh, there it's it can be discouraging to for people to think that there's this barrier where if if they're lucky they'll get out and because they because statistically speaking not everybody in the middle class makes it into the upper middle class and then upper middle class makes it into the wealthy in 1% and then the Uh, Fractions of the 1%, but really it's all just mindset. It really is all just motivation and figuring out how each individual person has a route laid out for them to to get there.
0: I agree. And I also think that a lot of that mindset requires agility, it requires adaptation, right? You can't have a mindset that, hey, we're in this boat, and if we just keep going and we slam hard enough into that glacier, we're going to make it through. No, no, no. You know, sometimes. You're heading down the wrong path and you have a lot of persistence and your mentality in most ways might be right where it needs to be. But because you're willing to, you're unwilling to make adjustments and, and to recognize through through data that things just simply aren't aren't going the way you want, you have to split test things until you reach what they call you know, maximum efficiency or maximum trajectory. And the only way to do that, especially when you're dealing with e-commerce is test, test again, split test the third way, right? And you just keep doing it. That's been my biggest uh, reason for success is not just the persistence and the right mentality, but because I was, you know, nine out of the 10 things I tried Mm -hmm. don't work. And if I wasn't willing to put in the Effort on the tenth one, I might quit right before I'm on the verge of great success, and so I completely agree with you. But a big ingredient to the right state of mind is agility and adaptation. So you got to shift it up as necessary to, to get mm-hmm. to get what
1: you're. Um, we're getting close to the uh, the I guess the the final ten minutes of this because I know you have um, you have a time limit as well, and I and I want to shift to the Airbnb thing. For for a moment, because this was some, another bit of content that I looked up, and serendipitously speaking, I was talking about this to a friend over the weekend. So for me, the timing of that was uh, something that I wanted to address. And what he told me is that um, landlords in apartments will cut out the middle people and they'll just rent the rooms out to Airbnb guests. And I know that's not what you guys were talking about. What you guys were talking about was you would rent an apartment. Or perhaps own it. Maybe I, I I didn't quite take a note on that part. And then whether it's being rented, which is doable, then it would just be serviced out to other guests. And then the revenue is 5x what a, a core renter might get. So this, I think, speaks to the adaptation and the flexibility that you're talking about. And it's also innovative, too, because you have one person renting it, giving it out to somebody else, really maximizing the space, making sure that it's not going to waste at any point. Um so my first question is I w- I was just wondering has the prospect of a landlord directly renting Airbnb out to guests has that crossed your radar at all um you don't have to like expound on it but I'm just wondering if you've seen or heard about this particular part
0: Yeah uh and and again I'll defer to uh, you know at least one specific video I'm still a, a student in the space you know this was just a brand new business model I always found really fascinating I have w- always loved real estate And I've always been on the innovative side of things by way of what I call modern income. I think if you're not focusing on ways that people like yourself, people like your audience, people like me are are making money, you're missing a huge opportunity because of the evolution of technology. You know, if you just look back a short time ago, short-term rentals weren't even a thing. Mm -hmm. Not in the sense that they are today, right? You had to stay in a hotel or a typical old school Airbnb where there was actually breakfast waiting for you in the morning and the homeowners were there with you. Um, And, and so uh, again, there's a lot of new ways of doing things that I'm discovering by way of doing the same thing that you're doing here by inviting me on the channel, which is I reach out to those specialists. And there was this couple that I saw on Facebook as a member of, of the community. If I'm in an industry, I'm going in and trying to connect with as many specialists as I can. And I see this post that says, We're 22 months into our short-term rental business, and we've already broken $655,000 in revenue. We've broken 1,000 reservations for our first 22 months. We have over 800 4.9 average out of five-star reviews. And I'm thinking, what am I doing wrong, right? What is $50,000 a year doing for me? Now, I obviously acknowledge there are some big differences because... We use our Airbnb for a majority of each year, and that's not what they're doing. So I reached out. I DMed them through Facebook. I invited them to come on the channel and share their story, and it blew me away what they've managed to accomplish by being um, really clever about their short-term renting business. And Essentially, what they've done is a combination of things. The first two properties that they own were properties they purchased. One was hers. One was his. They came together. They ended up moving into one of the two, rented out the other one. And then, uh, you know again, short-term rent out the other one and then fix up the basement of the one they're living in. And they're short-term renting both of those out. Those are the only two properties that they owned. Just like me, I own mine. But it required a lot of money down. Out of a $610,000 purchase, I put 20% in. That's $125K roughly. I ended up putting over-the-top decor and amenities in the thing. It cost me well over $200,000 just to get my property where I wanted it. Obviously, if I'm making 50 a year, not bad ROIs, 25% cash on cash. I'm happy with that, but I could have done a lot better. And what they started doing to grow their portfolio up to 12 properties was they started partnering with these landlords or the actual homeowners where they would either go in as a tenant and sublet the property out Two other guests through short term, very transparently, it was all agreed on the front mm-hmm. end with the landlord. They're not doing it secretly. Then they began also partnering with landlords, the homeowner, by saying, look, let's split the money that's coming in. And what this has done is it, it again, it woke me up to this whole new way of allowing short-term rentals to serve me well, where for a fraction of the cost, I don't have to come up with a down payment, which I normally would. I don't have a an eighty percent thirty year mortgage that I have to bury myself in debt with as I grow a portfolio, I, and the landlord, the homeowner, actually purchases all the furniture for the partnership. So it's been a really amazing strategy. I just had a conversation with that couple again last week on the channel. The interviews on the uh, on on YouTube. Check it out. And they broke the million dollar mark. This is now their 24th month. They, they, they surpassed their two year anniversary in October. So they're at about what, 20, 25 or 26 months now. And they're already over a million dollars of income. You know, as well as I do, that r- growing a business in, in two years that goes past a million dollars is very difficult to do. It's unusual. That's an anomaly. So I was so impressed with their ability behind this. And they did it all with nothing, right? They did it with with no knowledge, no coaches or mentors. Now they sell a coaching now, which if I were going into that space, you know, in 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 in, in, a, in a different way that I am in now, and that's my intention at some point. I've again I've stepped into other businesses recently that I'm focusing on, but when I choose to grow that, I will do it their way, right? And when I do it their way, I will do it with their blueprint, because I don't want to learn all the hard lessons that they've learned along the way if I can avoid them by just simply paying for their guidance. So I am a huge believer in mentorship, I'm a huge uh, a huge advocate for coaching. We sell it ourselves, we're very very strict about who we allow in. I know that sounds almost gimmicky, but you got to understand we do all of our coaching one-on-one, which means that it takes a tremendous amount of our time to to work with the right candidates. We'd rather work with people that we know are going to do well. It preserves our reputation, and anybody that Google searches VIP financial education will see that there are maybe two or three people that have ever expressed disappointment. Otherwise, we have an A-plus rating with the BBB and and, an otherwise perfect reputation over 20 years. And and you don't do that dealing with as many thousands of people as we have uh, by mistreating folks. So we're very selective. I know Michael and Katrina are selective too, but to answer your question, that is one of the most innovative forms of how to get into the short-term rental market with very little money out of pocket and without uh, with, with very little, if any, credit at all. So people who have bad credit can get into the space because they're not actually out borrowing mortgages for this approach. And I like that. The only downside to it is you obviously aren't collecting the assets that appreciate over time. And I, I think that given the 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 crazy circumstances going on right now in the country, that's actually a much safer place to be because you have rental, you know, rental moratoriums, you know, t- these tenants don't have to pay rent. It can be pretty dangerous right now to be a long-term landlord, which I also am. I've been lucky. My tenants have paid, but we've heard horror stories and uh, they can basically just shut the door in your face and say, sorry, I'm not paying. And that's scary. So I like giving the ownership to somebody else.
1: That checks out. And that was one of the uh, videos. I mentioned it briefly in the other question about, um, about my, my question about banking and savings is the breakdown between uh, renting and owning. And it is, it's encouraging to hear that both routes have their strengths and weaknesses. And a lot of it is depending on timing. and Unf-
0: can I add one thing to that? By all means, and I don't, I don't mean to cut you off, but I, I do want to elaborate briefly that the the difference between a short term rental business and a long term rental business is the short term rental business is a short term net cash flow solution. Long term tenants are not a long, are not a short term net cash flow solution. It's a long term net worth solution. And too many times mm. I see people confusing investing in real estate. As a short term solution to their cash flow needs, it is not half the time you will wonder whether or not your properties are making you more broke. You will be babysitting adults, you will be dealing with leaky toilets. There is a lot about it that is unattractive, and that is why people didn 't survive the last downturn is because they were towing the line. Of buying as much as they could, barely being able to afford it for an extra three, four, five hundred bucks a month increase to their bottom line. That is not enough to take on that kind of debt at this point. You need to solve the short short-term net cash flow equation, like Michael and Katrina have done, like I have done in many other ways, and then take that surplus of cash flow. If you build your cash flow to ten thousand, then twenty five, then fifty, then a hundred thousand a month, if you have an extra hundred thousand a month left over after your bills are paid, after you go to restaurants once they're, they're open again, once you buy things online and and, and that's really a, 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 an overage, the next best question is, what do I do with all this? It's the best problem to have. And taking that and then buying long-term rental properties that you can short-term rent out, taking on the, a, the asset because you can put so much more down and you can cash flow so much more highly and have such lo- lower risk levels is, in my opinion, the best formula to follow. And nobody talks about that. Everybody on YouTube is making it... They paint this picture like long-term buy and hold real estate is this sure way of success. And I don't believe that to be true. I think you will will never rent a yacht in Europe because you have rental properties at home. You'll never go, wow, this is because of my rentals. You can do that with short-term net cash flow solutions, which includes short-term rentals, as an example. It also includes e-commerce in many, many ways, lots of ways you can get into e-commerce and and, uh, solve the short-term net cash flow equation. But long-term rentals, in my opinion, long-term investments should be the last step of your investing uh, versus falsely painting it as something it isn't. Mm
1: -hmm. Just one additional observation I wanted to add on to that too is it makes a great deal of sense to rent it out for short-term because it gives you a chance to Make sure you know what could go wrong, like if if there's something <laughs> wrong with the toilet or something wrong with the shower or the sink, I'm seem to be hung up on plumbing because of what you talked about earlier if if somebody ends up going in in two weeks, they leave a review at least you know, and then those are you're more prepared for longer term renters where the problem could be a little bit more pronounced or protracted. What if they don't tell you about it and then the toilet just leaks and leaks and leaks
0: and we go into we go into short term rentals with a long-term rental contingency plan. So a plan B is we end up with a long-term rental by accident with a short-term rental as intention. And the long-term rental has to supplement the need of the cost of the property, right? If my mortgage is 2,500, I'm not gonna buy that property if my long-term tenant uh, rental capabilities are 2,000. I'll be upside down by 500 a month. So it has to play into the decision. My intention is to short-term rent it. But if for whatever reason, the county says, hey, no more short-term rentals, Mm -hmm. again, that's beyond my control. So we have to have a plan B for that acquisition. Otherwise, we end up stuck with assets that become liabilities. It's very careful to focus more than any other area on cash flow.
1: Matthew, I got to say, I'm going to need to listen to this episode again because you've given me so much great information and I'm doing my best to absorb it. And I can't wait to go back and unearth so much more of what you talked about. Uh, but I think we're out of time. I, I don't know how much longer I, I can keep you. So, to our listeners, um, what we've done today is just give you a window into what Matthew talks about, and I strongly recommend you go to the YouTube channel and sink your teeth into all of this because a, a lot, a lot of the people on my side, a lot of my my listeners, you know, they're in the e-commerce space, their things are going well, and they're generating money, and they might be asking, what are, What do I do with it next? And so. Go to Matthew's channel and you will find out what to do with it next and how to properly um, apply it to improving your life going forward. So, Matthew, I want to thank you. This has been fantastic. Uh, I also want to thank my own body for not drying my voice out. Sometimes my voice dries out and I am trying to figure out a remedy to stop it from happening. So, I'm giving, sounded great. Yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate that. It was, um, if you have any like last minute wisdom, now that you haven't already dispensed plenty, but I like to give people a chance just in case there was like a question you are hoping I'd ask and didn't quite get it out. So, uh, I'll let you have the floor one more time and while you're at it, let people know how to reach out to you.
0: Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. I cannot, I cannot reiterate it too many times. I, I'm just going to reemphasize the fact that you need to download the cash flow cruncher and track your numbers, track your numbers. If it's the one thing you take away from this. If you're listening to everything else saying, what is this guy rambling on about? I don't understand the power of leverage and borrowing money and using credit. Fine. But at least go in and get your cash flow cruncher and track what's coming in, track what's going out. You can make adjustments that will absolutely be worth your time. For most people, it's way worth it's way it's worth way more than any other way they could spend their time. So uh, I'm just going to leave it at that is to get the cash flow cruncher. And and obviously set yourself up with a, a credit karma account. It's also free as well. And you know track your track your credit and and make sure that uh, you're you're looking as appealing as possible to people with the money. You want people to want to give you money. Okay. Uh, as far as finding us, please do join us on the channel. That's all we ask. Be, visit VIP Financial Ed. On YouTube, VIP Financial Ed is an education. You can also look up VIP Financial Education if it's easier to remember. You can find us at the same place on Insta as well. So check us out there too. And uh, yeah, be sure to watch some of the most recent videos if you're interested in anything like airbnb um, If you're interested in anything like the infinite banking concept where you can gradually eliminate the need for banks in your life ever again. We talk a lot about that on our channel. We talk about getting completely out of debt and being 100% mortgage and non-mortgage related debt-free. We talk about investing in real estate where you can buy long-term rentals and add those to your long-term investment strategy where you can retire. You can have people paying your bills for you every single month. So just check out the channel. It's all free content. So join us there. Excellent.
1: All right, everybody. Uh, That's all the time that we've got for today. We will check in with you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening. You might've found this show on many number of platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoyed this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you. So whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at Debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to Debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next.